Hello, everyone, and welcome to Women Leaders in Medicine, a special podcast series led by our section editor on pulmonary and critical care medicine, Dr. Jasbal Singh. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions. Welcome, everybody. I'm Jaspal Singh from Consultant360. I work at Atrium Health at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. With me today, our two esteemed colleagues are Dr. Carla Seven from Vanderbilt University and Dr. Rita Buckrew from Wake Forest School of Medicine. So uh, welcome, ladies. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having us. So today's topic is really interesting and a very important topic to, I think, a lot of the country is, you know, it's one thing to have uh, a critical illness. It's another thing, thing to survive it. And your work, both of you, your seminal work in the post-ICU recovery clinic um, work has gained a lot of attention. So Carla, we want to introduce yourself first and tell us what you do and how you got into, into this work. Yeah, sure. I'm a, a pulmonary critical care physician at Vanderbilt University. I've been here for many years. I started out doing my internal medicine residency at Vanderbilt and I stayed here for fellowship. And toward the end of my fellowship, I was finagling for a faculty position and I had somewhat abandoned my mouse research. So I was looking for a clinician educator position and I had some ideas about what I wanted to do and where I could fill a need in the faculty and in our division. But around the same time, we also were starting to learn a lot about the long-term impairments after critical illness, a lot in part from the work that was coming out of Vanderbilt and from some of my colleagues and mentors. One of those mentors was Art Wheeler, who was the director of our ICU at the time and a mentor to me. He had encouraged me to go into critical care to begin with. And around the, I guess it must've been my third year of fellowship, his mother-in-law was critically ill. She was admitted to our hospital and to our service, a service that I was on. And, you know, although we knew intellectually from some of the research that was coming out that people were not necessarily doing well after critical illness, you know, that was some abstract data for many of us who were not directly involved in that research. But when um, Art took his mother-in-law home with his wife, Lisa, who is also medical. And despite having all the knowledge and all the resources at their disposal to take care of somebody who was recovering from critical illness, they really struggled and she struggled. And, you know, he asked himself and me, if we can't do this, you know, how are our patients doing and what are our patients doing? Because we were often not seeing them after the ICU. So that was really the genesis for us starting the clinic. We saw that there was a need and we weren't sure exactly what patients needed, but we felt that they needed something. And so Art was a great mentor and that he always encouraged me to be more bold than I was naturally and to just start stuff and see what happens. And that was the genesis of our post-ICU clinic. That's a wonderful story. So no mouse recovery clinic. We have a human recovery clinic. Perfect. All right, Rita, that's a great story. Rita, what's your story? Thanks for having me. My interest in recovery after critical illness really stems from interest that I had during my residency and fellowship and some of the seminal work by Margaret Herridge looking at long-term outcomes after ARDS and then some of the initial early mobility studies. And I've been really interested in physical function recovery after critical illness, both based on, you know, interventions in the ICU and then 
translating from that, what do we see long-term in patients? And so when I came to Wake Forest, our group here became interested in starting a post-ICU clinic, and that was back in 2014. So we've been iterating on our post-ICU clinic ever since. So it's, it's been an interesting journey. So post-ICU clinic or ICU recovery clinic, I, I'm just picturing that. I think I have a different image of what that looks like. I imagine if you looked around the country and sort of looked at these clinics, you've seen one, you've only seen one. You probably all look a little bit different. Tell me a little bit about like, what is the basics of, an IC, of a post-ICU recovery clinic? Start with you, Carla. What does that look like? Sure. Well, like I said, we didn't know what we were doing when we started this clinic. We knew what we were doing in the ICU and we felt very grateful to have a multidisciplinary team in the ICU. I was leaning very heavily on my nurses and pharmacists and respiratory therapists and physical therapists. And so we, we had some vague idea that we needed this team approach to these really complex problems. So we basically just asked those people to come downstairs with us. Um, we didn't have an ICU psychologist at the time, although many ICUs do have that. Uh, but we had Jim Jackson, who um, is a wonderful psychologist who specializes in the research realm in the uh, post-ICU and post-critical illness, cognitive impairments, PTSD, anxiety, and depression. So he was really interested in this and we became partners. We had not worked together before that. And now we've worked together very closely for 10 years, which has been a fantastic partnership in addition to my career for sure. And like Rita said, we, there have been many iterations. We've had the clinic open for 10 years and we've constantly been changing it based on feedback from patients. So when we first started, we did a really simple little, basically I Googled how to do a marketing survey um, and made a marketing survey <laughs> and gave it to patients. And I was like, what parts of this do you like? What parts do you think were useful? You know, it was a long visit. We wanted to make sure we were providing something of value, you know, and patients gave us their feedback. And sometimes, you know, the feedback kind of hurt. They were like, the name is dumb. We don't like it. It was uh, an originally called the ICU survivor clinic, which they said was too reminiscent of cancer survivorship programs, which course, we were also modeling ourselves a little bit after. Um, so they were very focused on getting back to their baseline and recovering fully and, and having a full life. And that was the impetus for our name change. And we also initially had a palliative care arm uh, in our initial model, which I thought is really, and I still think is really important. It just so happened that the patients who came to clinic did not want to engage in, in palliative care at that time. Again, this was a decade ago, so things may be different now. And I'm grateful to some um, other colleagues, um, at, for example, at UPMC, where they have a heavily palliative care integrated program. So I think we have a lot to learn there. But we were just constantly trying to serve, but also asking for service from our patients and their families. Tell us what you need and we will try to make that happen. So what I'm hearing you saying is you really had no framework. Um, you kind of had some cancer survivorship clinic as a framework and a frame of reference of where to start with, but just basically rolled up your sleeves, get out of your comfort zone, just start doing it and then just ask and see how it's working. And I shouldn't say there was no framework because the, our colleagues in the UK were doing this decades before we were. Good point. Um, and we looked at some of those early studies, for example, the practical study, there were some interesting studies out of Scandinavia, but we had a hard time with a couple issues. One is we have a really bad, in my opinion, fragmented for-profit healthcare system 
which made it really difficult for people to get the care that they needed. And we were, you know, the, a lot of those programs were looking at three months down the line. And we were seeing that our patients were ending up in back in the ER seven days down the line or two weeks. And we felt like we needed to do something at a sooner time point. We also had a lot of lofty ideas about what was needed, like cognitive therapy. But when we started seeing patients, we found out that a there was a lot of low hanging fruit, unfortunately, things that we thought were happening that were just slipping through the cracks and patients weren't getting home medical services or physical therapy or their oxygen or their meds. They didn't have primary care physicians. So there was a lot of kind of nitty gritty impacts that we could make on just provision of basic medical care, not to say that we don't also need cognitive rehab and long-term outcome follow-up. That's a great segue. Uh, Rita, what's you in your experience about the last eight, nine years? Yeah. So like I said, we started in 2014. So a couple years after Carla had been up and going and, you know, I had the benefit of my colleague Clark Files and I started the clinic together. And he said, you know, there's someone at Vanderbilt named Carla Seven who has started this clinic a couple of years ago. Let's get her on the phone and chat with her and see her experience. And sure enough, we got her on the phone and talked to her. And that was, you know, part of our framework for how we were going to structure our clinic. And we had the same learning as Carla did that folks did not want to be called survivors because ours was called our survivor clinic first as well. From there, we too have changed over the years. We have a, I guess, differently than Vanderbilt, we have a screening model for where our pharmacists screen patients in the ICU to see who's eligible to come to our clinic. Um, we do have a multidisciplinary clinic with our pharmacists as well and agree, you know, the timing of these appointments is just so difficult to get perfect. We initially were trying to see patients you know, one to two weeks after discharge and from our, you know, rough marketing surveys as well learned that patients just didn't want to come in that soon after they had just left us. So while that may be a good window of trying to intervene, they just felt burdened by that extra appointment. So we now see them about a month out, but you know, telehealth is something we probably should talk about at some point too. That's a good segue. All right. Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, we'll go, let's, we'll get that in a second. The telehealth piece, the multidisciplinary piece. That's a great segue. So what I'm hearing you kind of say is roll up your sleeves, look at some frameworks, you know, that work, figure out sort of the frequency, the cadence by which you're going to see them, identify in some shape or fashion, or maybe ideally systematically as to who might benefit and whether it's feasible or not. And then talk a little bit about the, you talked about multidisciplinary a little bit, both of you did, and how it look, might look different depending on your resources and the people that you have, local expertise. Is that about right? Yeah, I think definitely. Okay. Yeah, I definitely then, encourage people to, when they're trying to start a clinic, to lean on their local resources. Like I had Jim Jackson, that's not a resource that's available everywhere, but he's like a huge part of our clinic. Uh, there are other places that are really known for their, you know, physical therapy programs, or, you know, they have some other specialty and you should definitely leverage that strength. We're not able to be all things to all people. And a lot of what we're doing is screening for problems and referring them on to other specialists. But really my, my feeling is that anybody who works in an ICU setting, the ICU is such a strange planet. If you don't work in an ICU, the things that we are seeing that are sequelae of critical illness are really hard to identify. We have wonderful colleagues in primary care, for example, but they haven't been in an ICU in, in 20 years. And, um, you know, often their frame of reference and experience is very different from what we do in, in, in critical care. 
So um, I, I actually prefer the, the term interdisciplinary to multidisciplinary because we're not just lining up a bunch of disciplines. Like we're really working together and working off of each other's strengths. And I learned so much from that kind of collaborative practice with other disciplines in the clinic. And that's part of what makes me want to keep doing this, even when we run into trouble and, and, and barriers. It's really a gratifying way to practice medicine. I think it's a great message to kind of what, what does it look like and why you guys do your work. And I think it's fantastic. I like that, I like that term interdisciplinary too. So thank you for correcting me on that. This is all well. And I think Carla, you and I talked at one point, cause I did the same thing that Rita did is like, Hey, let me reach out to Carla. We want to start one in our health system a few years ago. And then, uh, and I think we got caught up in the um, making it work financially and the usual metrics of what we call both physician production, but also business models of modern healthcare in the ambulatory setting or outpatient care just these clinics don't pay, you know, and they end up they, on, a, on a business model, they don't, they don't quite succeed as well as you would have liked, you know, or at least somebody wants something to look well. Talk to us a little, little bit about the challenges of the business model there a little bit and how you overcame some of that briefly, if you don't mind. Rita, start with you. Sure. So, you know, I think we at Wake Forest have the benefit of being at a academic tertiary care system. And my section chief, quite honestly, said, you know, if this is important to you and this is something you want to, you know, base some research off of, um, he was sort of willing to commit some time in the clinic for us to see patients. Initially, this was over and above, you know, my typical clinical load in terms of I have a half day of clinic every week. So I added on to it to have recovery clinic. And you're right, it's it's not typically a money generating proposition. These visits are long and probably are not well compensated for. Although probably the new billing models from CMS where there's some time-based care that we can bill may, may improve that uh, potential business model aspect of things. So I think really um, a discussion with your leadership about, you know, why you want to start this clinic, what you hope to get out of it is very important. And then the feedback from your patients, we haven't really talked about that, but feedback from your patients as far as like their clinical care, but also what you can relay back to the ICU in terms of, hey, I saw Mr. So-and-so in recovery clinic last week. And gosh, none of us were really sure if he was going to get through this critical illness from COVID. And here he was walking in, you know, on two liters of oxygen three weeks later. I think that's potential unmeasured outcomes of clinic as well. That's great. Hold on to that thought. Remind me about it later. We could talk about burnout a little bit. Carla, tell me a little bit about how you overcame these challenges. Yeah, I, I have to echo Rita. That's like a very important part. You know, we talk a lot about what we can provide to patients, but we're not always talking about what we're getting from these services. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But I think on the financial front, when we first started, there was often this question of what is the return on investment? Yeah, it's not a money making proposition, but I'm not sure it's a money losing proposition. And there's a little bit of newer data coming out, for example, from the Geisinger system, they described their experience being self-insured and even accounting for the time they gave for their, their critical care uh, specialist to do clinic and a dedicated nurse case manager to follow up patients in a pretty 
hefty multidisciplinary model, there was still actually a cost savings as well as a signal for mortality benefit in the patients who came to clinic, not randomized, but really kind of the first data that we have in terms of the financial impact. So, uh, and, and I want to talk a little bit about the sort of the non-financial uh, or non-tangible uh, returns on investment too, but I like to change the question a little bit. I don't think it's, can we afford to do these clinics? I, I think the question is, can we afford not to do these clinics? And a lot of that impact is in improving our own practice and, and our own quality of care. And that of, of everything that I've learned in the last 10 years, I think the, the clinical knowledge that I've gained from seeing these patients in clinic and understanding the natural history of critical illness, which has been nowhere more important than now in COVID, which is a new disease, that, that is valuable to me beyond measure and helps me every day when I'm in the ICU to counsel patients and families about, about critical care and recovery. That's well said. So kind of just kind of re recapping a little bit. So it sounds like I like your framework there, uh, Carla, saying how can we afford not to? Because there's other, there's both tangible, we don't, as long as we don't, we don't lose money, we provide a value to a lot of people, and including the workers, including the patients, including the families, including a whole bunch of parts of the system. It's a very fragmented system as, as a, uh, to begin with. That if you model it well enough and you study it, you actually may not, you may not lose as much as you might think, or you might gain other ways that are just as important, if not more about more valuable. Right. And it's a little disingenuous to say, I can't afford to uh, schedule you a four hour clinic space a week when we have a fixed wing aircraft that will fly out to God knows where and cannulate people for ECMO and bring them back and put them on ECMO for 80 days. You know, the cost benefit analysis uh, per patient, although it has not been well studied, I think remains in the favor of post ICU clinics. If you are going to go out and pick somebody up and cannulate them for ECMO and completely change the trajectory of their life, even if you save it, I think we also have a responsibility to provide the appropriate follow-up care to that, just like we would for a cabbage or when you come in and have a baby, we don't say follow up with your PCP in six weeks. Now that makes a lot of sense. Um, so now you alluded to COVID-19, both of you did. So now we're kind of perking, we're kind of all thinking about this. We're all kind of working on these post-ICU recovery clinics. We're all trying to get a handle of them. And then along comes this pandemic with this horrible respiratory illness that pretty much devastates the population. You know, over half a million have died in this country alone. Um, and there's numbers are still going up, uh, even though the, the case numbers may not be as high as they were at one point, our census may not be high. People are still dying of this disease or surviving and left quite debilitated. My own parents, I think I mentioned at the beginning of this call, just recovering from COVID themselves. And it's exposed a lot of other issues in the home. And so you start to see they survive short hospitalization, but there's a lot of downstream effects. And I can imagine what we're seeing now and uncovering at a massive scale with the high-risk population. Talk to us, I'm sure everyone's coming to you and asking sort of, okay, we're getting started now. We're in the midst of a, of, of a massive uh, problem. Where do we even begin? And how do you look at this from the COVID-19 framework now at this junction? Rita? Yeah, I, I think, you know, each health system's response to COVID-19 has been a little bit different. Here at Wake Forest, you know, we've not created a special post-COVID clinic, but I know many centers have. Our approach has been rather to, we sort of beefed up our hospitalist at home program so that many patients can get care at home that they, you know, otherwise would have at the hospital. We've be beefed up our access to regular primary care appointments. And then 
sort of have a framework for primary care physicians to follow with appropriate referrals to subspecialties, with probably PULM being pulmonary critical care being overrepresented in those referrals. So I alluded to that I have a regular pulmonary clinic as well. That's now become most commonly a post-COVID clinic. And I'm seeing a lot of patients in that venue. And then, you know, our ICU clinic has remained, post-ICU clinic has remained ongoing. And so we see a subset of post-COVID patients in that arena. By the same token, you know, I don't have the same resources available to me in in my regular pulmonary clinic that I do in our post-ICU clinic. But I think our approach to managing post-COVID patients is evolving. And and I don't think we know exactly the right approach at this point. That's, That's very fair. Um, Carla, what's your approach and take on all this going on? First of all, we were very blessed. I won't say we had foresight because obviously we did not know this was going to happen, but we had already started a telemedicine version of our ICU recovery clinic about eight months before COVID hit because of what Rita alluded to, this difficulty in getting patients back to clinic in this early time point. So we were already testing and piloting a telemedicine version in order to try to reach people sooner and some people at all who we were not able to get physically back to clinic. So when COVID hit, you know, everything overnight basically had to turn to telemedicine. We're like, great, we're ready, bring it. You know, we know how to do telemedicine, luckily. I think it also shows what's possible. That project was (laughs) probably eight years in the making and there were so many barriers to doing telemedicine. And then all of a sudden from one day to the next, everybody was doing telemedicine. So, you know, when when the motivation is there, huge change can happen. And COVID-19 was that motivation. We were obviously very fixated on our in-ICU processes at the beginning, how to care for these patients, how to ventilate them, how to extubate them, how to mobilize them, how to anticoagulate them, et cetera, et cetera. And so we, our post-ICU clinic was really this receptacle for the early survivors that we saw after the first survivors that we saw after our first admissions. And we really learned a lot from them. One of the things that we learned was really surprising is that you can be very, very sick with COVID and recover completely, which was awesome. The other thing that we learned is you can be very, very sick or not that sick with COVID and have really persistent, even permanent uh, pulmonary impairments and other impairments. And so, as I alluded to earlier, this is, this is like a new disease that we had to learn the natural history of it. And we couldn't learn the natural history unless we had some sort of infrastructure to see patients afterwards. And, uh, you know, I started making little lists in Epic, like, oh, now I've seen two people with this problem post COVID. And now I have all kinds of lists. And also we put together a a database just for the pulmonary problems and people, we were like, just send them to us and we'll try to figure it out. And if it's not pulmonary, we'll get them to the right person, uh, which is of course, very similar to what we do in our post-ICU clinic. Um, So I did also have to add another half day of clinic to try to accommodate all the post-COVID consults. But because I already had this mindset, you know, clinic can be a really burdensome thing. If you're an ICU person, you kind of rather be in the ICU putting in lines and doing exciting stuff. But, you know, you might also like to be a surgeon cutting stuff, but then you don't have no post-op visit. So you learn a lot from checking your work and seeing what the outcome of your work is. So I really felt, you know, I, I, I was horrified by the pandemic and I wish we had no COVID, but I was also kind of excited to see these patients and trying to figure out 
what the natural history of COVID was. And I mean, obviously we're still very early in it. We're still learning a lot about it, but it also kind of peeled back the the curtain for everyone else in this country and the world about what post-hospital needs, post-illness needs may be. And I'm hopeful that that will make care better for all patients, not just post-COVID patients. I think that's great. I think what you're kind of highlighting is that the system is so fragmented that you found a way, a mechanism by investing in this clinic, this mechanism to sort of manage them, whether that be a virtual or an in-person op- uh, a solution or some hybrid model as we move forward in the pandemic, trying to take care of a very complex population as we, as we learn more, as you say, as we evolve, that we're doing it in an interdisciplinary fashion, being smart about it, but being a resource for the population that we serve in this fashion. And I think it's, you know, I think you're right. And I think I do worry that sometimes we've isolated ourselves in the intensive care unit or the floors or the clinic. And then we have all these specialists we all work with that are sort of in these little cocoons, but we don't actually step back and say, can we cross fertilize more intentionally um, and really understand how we, to do, how to get the work done that's, that, that's needed, that's needed to be done. Well, that's great. But both of you, um, this is our last segment of the podcast, sort of have t- taken a lot of time, energy, and personal investment to do this. Rita, you've added some more additional clinic time, which I'm sure you love to work harder and work more. I think all of us, I think, in this discipline of pulmonary critical care sort of work harder than uh, is asked for us, as asked, expected of us. And you probably invested a lot. And although there are some rewards here, this obviously probably been exhausting for you. Talk to us a little about how you maintain some sense of wellness or work-life balance, or if you struggle, like a lot of us do. Well, I guess I'll be honest. It's a struggle. Carla knows I have a seven-month-old, so I had a baby mid-pandemic. Congratulations. Thank you. So that was was its own struggle, you know, trying to stay safe in the era of COVID, trying to keep my child safe in the era of COVID. In addition to, to that, there was a lot of work during maternity leave that I just couldn't leave undone. Um, and so there was a good amount of work during maternity leave. And then, you know, since then, it's just been a race to try to catch up and get as much done as I could. And it's, it's hard to ever, the, the to-do list never ends. and It just grows longer, as, as I say. <laughs> I think, you know, there's, there's that perspective, but there's also the immense joy from family and things outside of work. And so I personally find it very important at the end of the day to take some time and just enjoy family and, you you know, not be trying to answer emails on my phone while I'm, I'm with my family and try to um, try to have some balance, knowing that it's always, always in the works of, of trying to keep that balance good. But. Thank you for that honesty. I know it's not challenging. It's, it's beyond challenging. So thank you for sharing. Carla, how do you hold it up together with all this? Yeah, good. I think I'm very good at compartmentalizing, which I think is protective. I had this even as a trainee, I drive out of the garage and, you know, completely forget about work <laughs> to the point where sometimes I would drive back into the garage the next morning and remember that I was supposed to prepare a presentation or something. But it's more important to be in it for the long haul. And, you know, I think most of us are pretty resilient to stress. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in this job. For me personally, I've invested a lot of time and honestly money into building my life in a way where I don't waste time on things that are not important to me. So I do not enjoy traffic. So I live very close to work and I walk every day and I think my good thoughts on the way in and I 
let go of things on the way out. So by the time I reach my home after 20 minutes, I'm ready to be a family person. And I have a lot of help. So, you know, I, I think people don't really talk about that too openly, but <laughs> I have a lot of help. Most of it's hired, but I think the most important thing for people in medicine, not just women, is to have a partner who's going to be your partner. And sometimes your partner uh, telling you to put down the phone is what is needed. <laughs> and, and that's helpful. But I, I feel the same way as Rita, you know, the family is a uh, is a joy and a place to, to replenish. But I also honestly get a lot of joy from my work and I have a lot of variety in my work. If I had to, you know, peck out Epic notes, 12 hours a day, every day, I, I would not be in this job anymore, but I get to do some teaching. I get to do clinical care. I get to do research. I do a fair amount of admin. I have fantastic colleagues, this interest in ICU recovery has connected to me to Rita and to you, Jas Paul, and to um, colleagues all over the world. We have a lot of the work and connections that we have there started through the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the Thrive Task Force. Uh, we now have Cairo, which is the Critical and Acute Illness Recovery Organization, which has upwards of 40 active sites who are doing post-ICU clinics and, and peer support. So all of that kind of work is very regenerative. And as one of our colleagues said at one of the Thrive meetings, you know, describing their peer support program, once you started getting patients and families back and hearing their experiences and the benefit that they got from a post-ICU program, they're like, this is really addictive work. Once you start doing this, you want to do it more. And so while I don't feel that anyone should martyr themselves to do the work that they think is important, if your institution is not cooperative, nobody who is doing a post-ICU clinic has not spent a, a significant amount of uncompensated time doing that. And uh, I, I don't, I don't know that that's too different from anything else in, in an academic setting. And if we need to do the heavy lift, so our colleagues in community practice can convince their administrators, then then that's where, what we're going to do. But it has benefits too. I think it's really well said. I think both of you. So um, so just kind of quick recap and the sort of take-home points and correct me if I missed some. Sounds like build a framework for a post-ICU recovery clinic. The country, patients, populations need it. I think that it's rewarding work. You're both telling me it's, it's rewarding work. It provides value both to you, your teams, the institution, the organizations that you work for, but also to yourself personally in terms of satisfaction and, 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 um, and look, when you look back about impact. I think the idea, what you both said, is be very interdisciplinary about this and then study it, uh, ideally. Sort of figure out what parts survey your patients, survey the people that you serve, figure out what parts provide value. Um, and then keep at it and kind of keep building on it because this is becoming a, this is not going away. If anything, COVID, COVID-19 has taught us that, that this is a problem that was existed way before COVID, but it's now getting some final attention, that attention that deserves. And hopefully we can help to sort of plug some of the holes in a very complex health system in, in the U.S. I think those are the main things. I think the idea of business models and stuff will work itself out if you have committed people to help you. Surround yourself with people that are, that are committed to this work. And I think it'll eventually happen. Is that pretty accurate? Yep. Yeah. Sounds good. And don't burn yourself out along the way. Uh, keep focused, keep well, keep resilient. 
And on behalf of Consultant 360, again, I'm just following with Carla, Dr. Carlos Seven and Dr. Rita Buckru. I, mean, I want to thank them both for all their service, especially as a country needs people like them to do what they're doing and making things better for the rest of us. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.